Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Are you reading the book, Understanding Behavioral Bias? Yeah, if you uh, aren't, then you can find a copy on Amazon. And if you've picked up a copy, if you feel so inspired, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave us a review. Uh, It helps us to uh, basically see what you think and uh, improve our process. Okay, welcome back. Here we go with another episode of the Mental Models podcast. And we are uh, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is uh, affecting our daily thoughts um, moment to moment. So these episodes that we are doing in this period are are uh, likely to be um, worth revisiting later on once once uh, the future's unfolded. But for right now, we thought we would focus on uh, how we think about uh, the COVID-19 situation, uh, specifically with regard to numbers. So whenever we quantify things, we uh, basically open ourselves up to a variety of uh, problems depending on our assumptions. Uh, you can uh, be very off the mark in certain ways because especially thinking in terms of longer term outcomes, we just have a great deal of difficulty doing that since we uh, are operating from uh, a position of, of less information than we'd like. Now, two very clear biases impact how we think numerically, uh, one being anchoring bias, which uh, was described by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman decades ago in which uh, we basically grab on to any number that's forthcoming and uh, anchor ourselves to that number. And then the problem with doing that is we fail to adjust sufficiently uh, when there's reason to. So for example, if um, you uh, initially see a certain drop in a stock, uh, you're you're thinking that's, that's sort of going to set the stage for how things will unfold. Um, In unprecedented times like these, where whole industries are facing problems like they've never seen before, um, if you've anchored on um, a certain drop or a certain percentage loss, you're not going to be able to adequately adjust and and, uh, recalibrate to the full extent of of the problems that are likely to unfold. That's a very negative example, but certainly relevant. Uh, And the other bias uh, I'll mention to kick us off is known as base rate neglect. And this is another classic observation by Kahneman and Tversky in which uh, people tend to uh, fail to take into account um, base rates in the population, certainly relevant to when a disease hits in terms of number of cases, number of deaths, uh, numbers of, of recovered individuals, all extremely relevant indicators, but hard to think about because we often don't uh, consider um, the, the surrounding uh, base rates. Uh, and this is certainly relevant when you make any comparison to influenza or other viruses um, as to what the uh, outcomes are going to be. So anchoring bias and base rate neglect will kick off this episode. Yeah, so when we think about anchoring bias early on when the virus the virus was uh being talked about and was somewhat discounted by the administration and by a number of others uh that were were looking at it 
uh, as you know, perhaps a buy the dip situation in the markets. Uh, they focused. There was a lot of analogies drawn to the flu season, and this year we've actually had a pretty violent flu season. It's killed 57,000 people, and so uh, they would look at coronavirus and say, well, you know, yes, it you know it could kill thousands of people, but uh, we experience that all the time, and, and there's some efficacy to that reasoning in the United States about. 7,700 people die on average in a daily basis, and we have about 2.8 million deaths. Now, most of those are associated with heart disease and cancer and uh, aging-related ailments. Usually, it's older people that are dying. Uh, but then we have other things like uh, car accidents with about 35,000 people that die every year uh, in auto accidents. It's an interesting that's been down pretty significantly uh, from the financial crisis uh, for a number of different reasons, which aren't really relevant here. But nonetheless, we don't ban people from using autos because of the scourge of uh, auto accidents. We, we have certain risks that we're willing to accept. So when, you know, when I give you those figures and you think about those as, uh, as being kind of risks that we're willing to take on a day-to-day -day basis, and then we look at how many deaths as of today being uh, uh, March 29th, 2020, the current total deaths from the coronavirus in the United States are only 2,384. Now, that's horrible for each individual person uh, that has, has passed that way. But when we look at that, the difficulty with using the anchor of the other uh, uh, figures that I cited and then relating it to the coronavirus is that it tends to be a neglect of of really understanding geometric growth uh, because a week ago uh, the total deaths associated with the coronavirus were only 500. So you've had almost a five-fold growth in deaths uh, in uh, in a week. And with respect to total cases, there's currently 135,000 cases or so of coronavirus as, as of today. A week ago, that was 46,000. So that's a threefold increase. And when you have uh, geometric growth, when things grow at geometric scale, the numbers can get very, very big very, very quickly uh, if they're not checked. So when we're talking about this, uh, you know, next uh, if we're talking about this in a week from now, it would not be unreasonable that we're talking about uh, 20,000 deaths or 25,000 deaths in the United States. So uh, it, it's helpful to, to think of these things in context. But you have to be very careful uh, with respect to something that's in motion like the coronavirus and whether it's moving in a linear fashion or whether it's moving in a geometric fashion. That's right. And geometric growth is extremely difficult for people to think about. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, one of the tools we have in laboratory research on thinking and reasoning. It's known as the cognitive reflection test. And it's a simple sort of uh, test that involves several questions uh, which have compelling, uh, obvious, intuitive answers that turn out to be wrong. And what you have to do to solve these correctly is to think more deliberately and deeply about a problem. One of them actually focuses on 
uh, an exponential growth situation. And people um, naturally move toward kind of a linear growth pattern and fail to realize how uh, steep the curve gets with exponential types of growth. So thinking about numbers that rise um, in this manner is just kind of unnatural for our cognitive states. Uh, so that becomes really tricky since you, you can't quite predict uh, the future and tomorrow may look very different than yesterday and the ground is kind of shifting uh, beneath our feet, so to speak, numerically. So uh, I think that's been one of the major challenges that people have had adjusting to to this type of thinking, the, the, the growth being um, just compounding day by day. And, uh, you know, all you can really do is just keep looking at the numbers and keeping in mind uh, this, this may grow um, more strongly. The interesting thing, too, when we think about something like this is uh, the, narr- the power of narrative. Uh, it's probably the case that most people don't really have a grasp uh, of how many people this has actually affected in the scope of uh, the population as a whole. It seems like a very small amount when we're talking about 100 deaths or 500 deaths uh, at relative to the entire population. But uh, when narrative takes hold, it can have a disproportionate effect on policy. One thing that's ironic about all of this, and, and Dan and I were talking about this before, if you look at weekly deaths in the United States as tracked by the CDC for the week ending March 7th, uh, weekly deaths are down on average by about seven to 10,000 uh, people despite the coronavirus. So given that, you know, each week we're, you know, there's seven to 10,000 people fewer dying this year versus last, uh, and that there's right now 2,400 people that have died associated with coronavirus, the coronavirus has been a lifesaver up to this point. Uh, Now, it probably will uh, not be the case when it is in full force. Hopefully that won't be the situation. Hopefully we are able to bend the curve uh, before all is said and done. And uh, the, uh, the effect of the coronavirus is not as dramatic, but because it's growing geometrically, you know, that, uh, that measurement of weekly deaths, uh, and largely they're down because other causes aren't actually occurring. So if you think about uh, situation where people can get communicable diseases through contact, if you're cutting it off with coronavirus, then you're cutting it off for those other diseases as well. Plus, accident deaths, things like auto accidents, are probably down significantly because of a very significant drop in motor vehicle miles driven as people shelter in place. Right. Traffic is way down. I have even seen news um, on different uh, environmental benefits occurring right now just based on uh, the lack of um, commuting and and associated pollution. That's really not in the U.S. so much, but in other parts of the world. So um, there are these really unexpected uh, consequences. Uh, It it kind of requires keeping in mind this is all... um, one big interactive system. It's not as if the uh, coronavirus is the only thing um, impacting our lives. And changes in behavior on mass scales that we've not seen before 
are going to have other unexpected consequences and already are in some uh, places in the world. And we're likely to see those play out um, in surprising ways here as well. Um, two other biases I wanted to bring into the conversation here, which are quite relevant to how we think about something like a pandemic, one of which is um, known as the knowledge illusion, which is this idea that um, you understand the virus. Um, now, if you're a virologist in, uh, in a research lab, you, you do understand the virus most likely. Um, expertise has a big effect on how we think about things. Viruses are rather hard to think about. Um, as evidenced by uh, the news cycle. So we've had a number of, of issues related to viruses and comparisons are being made all the time. And uh, those can be false comparisons if you don't really understand um, how viruses work. Probably the most obvious meme has been it's just like the flu, it's just another type of the flu. And uh, there are a number of issues with that uh, comparison. Um, but it, it makes sense to the average person because if, if, unless you're in uh, this in molecular biology and understanding transmission and, and, and characteristics and, and all those core mechanical features, um, it can start to feel like we understand this better than we do just because we've listened to a small amount of uh, expert knowledge. Um, that's a risk and uh, we get overconfident and we start to act as if uh, we've, we've got things uh, under control when we really don't. So uh, that knowledge illusion is a challenge. And then secondly, the curse of knowledge is another uh, knowledge-based illusion which uh, becomes relevant here. The curse of knowledge classically happens when you do have expertise. So someone that is a virologist is likely to accidentally think that um, uh, less skilled people are going to share their knowledge. Um, and it, it's sort of a type of anchoring effect in a weird way, like a uh, concept-based anchoring, that whatever your understanding of the world is, others probably share it to the gr a greater degree than they really do. And it comes from this failure to adjust, which applies in, in the numerical case with um, anchoring and adjustment fallacies, but it also applies in the uh, curse of knowledge where you uh, expect others to act um, based on knowledge that's somewhat unique to you. Um, you're, you're more at risk for this if you're an expert. So the knowledge illusion represents a case where you're, you're ignorant about things and uh, you're believing you understand them more than you do. And the curse of knowledge is kind of the opposite where you're quite expert at things and you fail to um, appreciate the ignorance level others have. So all of this is very related to news on the coronavirus because uh, you have individuals varying in expertise um, and then making policy recommendations and then experts on the economy uh, making different sorts of projections to try to balance economic impact versus health impact. So when we're thinking about the trajectory of the stock market and the economic impact associated with the coronavirus, because it does make a difference. Uh, we will have a recession as a result of uh, of the of the virus. Uh, that's that is unavoidable. But the question is: Is it going to be a long or a shallow recession? And a big determinant of that is how long does it take? for the coronavirus to become contained. 
How long does it take for us to learn to deal with it? Do we come up uh, with palliative uh, uh, medicines that can reduce the effect of the virus on the people who catch it that open the door for more people to be able to uh, leave the uh, the shelter in place uh, 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 remedy that we've created. So uh, a lot of that it can be determined to some degree. If we knew if we knew the trajectory of the disease uh, and knew the timing as to how long it would take. Because the longer this takes, the more damaging it'll be to the economy. Uh, the, the less impactful the stimulus will be relative to uh, the ability for a lot of businesses to go without revenue. So, uh, the, and a good way to make that assessment is to look at other expert assessments of what the trajectory is likely to be over time and pick several different scenarios that you can see and imagine each of those scenarios and look for uh, signposts or, or, or markers that would suggest that each of the various scenarios are coming to fruition. Uh, for instance, there may be one where there's a relatively rapid decline of the disease uh, or there's one where, uh, it, you know, the, the current trajectory uh, it becomes muted uh, after uh, several weeks, and then there may be a third scenario where it's several months. How will you know which scenario is actually applicable? It's good to refer to various experts uh, who who uh, are following that are virologists and they're, they have statistical uh, expertise to be able to have uh, a, an accurate assessment of what the various outcomes may be, uh, also taking into account their biases, because in some cases, uh, if it's a government official, they may want uh, to paint a relatively extreme picture to assist people uh, in their uh, uh, compliance with uh, the, the remedies that have been mandated by the government. Uh, now maybe that's not the case, but but it's it's certainly a possibility that they could they could harbor that type of bias. Uh, so once you have the various outcomes that you can assess, then you can put them to context, and then you can look for those markers that'll help you understand which ones are coming to fruition, and that'll help you come up with at least some assessment of when the immediate effect, uh, economic effect of the virus comes to an end. And then you have to ask, what happens once it's over? That's right. And according to um, just the, the, the current thinking, um, there's, there's a disproportionate number of cases from the New York City area. Um, there's another variable there, you know, just regional density of people um, and, and local behavior. So how uh, compliant people are with uh, shelter in place, for example, you know, it's going to impact uh, different regions um, in, in unknown ways. And you mentioned the bias toward stating things more catastrophically than necessary. Um, I think Eric Garcetti, the, the Los Angeles um, mayor, had had a, a phrase that was that was was well put um, that that when it feels right to make a change in behavior, you're too late. 
You want to do it when it feels actually uncomfortable, and that's what's going to head this off. And so that's a really unintuitive thing um, because we 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 want to operate on you know sort of we're guessing as to what's the right uh, preventative measure at the right moment. In many ways, you do have to be willing to act uh, in advance of when it feels correct in order to uh, make a change in the the virus spread. So lots to think about here, a lot of psychological challenges to uh, grapple with. Um, so the regional density of people is another one of those where it, it's a curveball in thinking about the numbers because uh, in less populated states, there's clearly less ability for a virus to transmit than in, in densely urban areas. I think that's right. Uh, and we'll see, uh, hopefully New York is gonna be the outlier uh, and we won't see what's been experienced there as just a precursor as to what we'll see in other large metropolitan areas. And Andrew Cuomo has said, what's happening to us is you in three to four weeks. And hopefully that doesn't come to fruition and behavior can change that. Um, but the other aspect of it is, uh, you know, he may be talking uh, in terms of, um, we hope that's not the case, but this could happen. Um, it really is hard to use New York as a, as a clear-cut example because it is the most densely populated area. And unfortunately, uh, had this happen early um, so that it was in the position of um, serving as an example, which, um, you know, you have to kind of move things back. Uh, there already has been a lot of shelter in place that's likely affecting things. And there's a lag on when these numbers emerge. So the daily numbers are not the true daily numbers. Again, it's probably underreported in some cases. Uh, you know, testing's not complete. And also, um, we it, it's a, there's a delay. Preventative measures won't immediately show up in the growth uh, slowing on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. They're lagged to some degree. So those all make thinking about these numbers extremely challenging. I agree. I agree. And it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds, you know, with the, uh, with the hope that it is not, it is not one of the more severe, uh, severe outcomes. All right. So let's wrap it up for today. We have talked about how we psychologically perceive numbers and a variety of the challenges that are associated with the current times. Namely, that these numbers are uh, not in, emerging in real time. Uh, there's a lot of regional population distribution variability. Uh, there's compliance and policy variability that impact the numbers. And then uh, furthermore, we just have these shortcomings in how we think numerically. Namely, we tend to anchor on a particular number and then fail to adjust adequately. That's particularly challenging under these uh, conditions we ignore base rates and so it it starts to uh you know we've got to remember it's a complex system and to, to really understand the how we emerge from this is going to require considering uh the, the change in behavior across a whole variety of areas of life um you know there are other causes of death that are actually reducing right now based on uh, preventative measures based on the virus. And then other things like uh, how we uh, consider expert knowledge. Uh, when we have too much knowledge, it's called the curse of knowledge, where we overinterpret that others see what we see. And likewise, if we're pretty ignorant, 
we uh, tend to listen to experts and then think we understand it when we really don't. So uh, all of these and other biases are uh, active in shaping this landscape. And um, as George put it, hopefully we won't see some of these um, events uh, occur the way they have uh, in other parts of the world. Only time will tell. Um, so we'll keep watching the news and watching our biases, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.